As we do, we're thinking about this theme. We've had this theme set before us of following Jesus, of, of we don't always know where we are going, but we always know that he knows, and he is faithful, and he is good. And, and when vision, physical vision fails us, we can't see the path ahead. We, by faith, the eyes of faith, we follow the one who knows and who holds all things in his hand. With that in mind, I just want to offer you a couple of verses as we go to prayer from Psalm 138 where David said this. This is a great psalm of praise and devotion, but then he also says this, even though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch forth your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me, for the Lord will accomplish what concerns me, for your loving kindness, O Lord, is everlasting. Fathers, we come before you this morning Father, singing these rich songs of worship, our hearts being stirred and lifted, I, I trust each and every one of us as, as we are being led in song. And Father, having journeyed so in such a profound way to the cross and being reminded of the oneness, that there is one body, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one, one Savior and King who is over in and through all. Father, we're so thankful for that, but at the same time, we come with things that concern us. Father, we come to you. One of the reasons we come to you, we come first and foremost to worship because you're worthy and you're always worthy to be praised. But Father, we also come on Sunday morning knowing that, that this is a place to, to lay our burdens down. This is a place to confess, to acknowledge the things of our heart that, that are challenging, that are troubling, that are confusing. Father, this is a place where, Father, if we are truly seeking your face, it is safe to be who we are and where we are. And it is also right that we expect you to meet us here. Father, not because we are good, but because you are. Not because we are worthy, but because you are. Not because we are faithful, but because you are. And we can trust, Father, and we can agree with David when he says, you will accomplish what concerns us today, even if we're walking through the valley of trouble. Father, your loving kindness is everlasting. Your faithfulness is great. We're so glad to belong to you. And Father, having lifted our voices in worship, Father, having gotten a vision, a glimpse of the power, the unifying power of the cross, Father, we now open our, our ears and ultimately seek to open our minds and our hearts, Father, not to what I am going to say, but for what you are going to say through the preaching of your word. Father, we thank you for the gift of the scriptures. We thank you that in poetry and in story and in prophecy, in law and commandment, you are present on each and every page. And Father, my prayer is always this morning as we go to your word is that we would, in fact, see Jesus on the pages that we go to and that he will grow greater and, and more wonderful in our understanding by the time we leave than by the time we came in. Father, that's a tall task for us. It's nothing for you. And so we invite you right now by the power and the presence of your wonderful Holy Spirit to meet us here and be our teacher. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would be the one who guides us in truth, that you would be the one who guards us from error and misunderstanding, that you would deliver us from apathy, from pride, from indifference, from, from whatever other baggage we came in clutching with both hands, that we would lay it all down, we would lay ourselves down, and in these moments together, that we truly might see Jesus. Father, may we see Jesus clearly this morning as we go to your word, and may we see Jesus only this morning as we go to your word. And when we leave in a little while, Father, may it be with, 
fresh hope, new joy, deeper desire to go where you go, to stay where you stay, to move when you say move, to follow you every step of our lives. We love you, we trust you, and it is in the strong, wonderful, precious name of Jesus that we pray as all God's people said together, amen, amen. You may be seated. And as always, as you're taking your seats, boys and girls can scoot for Children's Church. We can make their way out. It looks like they'll be with, uh, with Ben this morning. I know the kids love being with Ben like they do with all those Children's Church teachers. And they're going to have a good time in God's Word. And I trust that as we return, turn in your Bible, if you would, with me to the book of Ruth, the story of Ruth, that we are also going to have a good time here today in God's Word. I want you to meet me in your Bible, as I said, in Ruth chapter 3. Did I just say chapter 2? I meant, if I did, I meant, it was in my head anyway. Chapter 3 of Ruth is where I want you to meet me this morning. As we continue uh, this particular study, as we continue making our way through the story of her life and what God was doing in it and through it. And as you're making your way there, I want to share actually just a couple of things with you. I don't have a major announcement like I did last Sunday, but I wanted to update you because I was so, so very encouraged. If you were here or you tuned in last Sunday, you know I presented to you an opportunity that came my way to, to assist with the Cedar River Academy, the old Taylor School, uh, to participate in their Teacher Appreciation Week. And when I came in on Tuesday morning to start my work week out, uh, more than 30 of you had stepped up to participate in that. I was so encouraged. We've had a couple of ladies agree to sort of spearhead the effort. So if you haven't heard from them yet, you will soon. And I think we're going to have a really, really neat opportunity here uh, to minister to that school. So thank you is the first thing I want to say. Thank you to all of you. Um, who, who either stepped up or who are going to be praying for that. Um, I always know I can count on our church to come through on things like that. And once again, you have in a very big way. The second thing I want to say, and this actually directly pertains uh, to the message, um, and, and I've shared with you before that as, as Sunday morning unfolds, from the time I walk in the door, I'm always, whether I'm supposed to be or not, I'm looking for clues that, you know, that, that we're sort of, or that, that really what I'm, Lord, am I on the right track this morning? Am I going? Am I going to say what you want me to say? And, and he always seems to find ways to drop little subtle clues and hints. Maybe there's a lyric or a, uh, something in a song or a scripture, and, and it's like, yes, this is where we're going. Well, it was really cool today. Um, and just to, to take two steps back in the story, as some of you know, uh, uh, COVID has uh, reemerged in our house. And, and, and for those of you who are praying for us, thank you. A couple of our kids came down with it this week. I've already had it, so I'm in the clear, um, but I'm keeping my distance just the same. But that meant my wife had to stay home, and she's been teaching the senior high Sunday school class. And so she said on Thursday, it's on you. Uh, you take the class. And, and I love, let me tell you, I love our high school students. They are so much fun. Uh, they, I mean, they consume lots of donuts, and, and, and that's good. That keeps all of us happy. But they are smart kids, and they are insightful, witty kids. And I, and I felt like the Lord said, um, I'm not going to tell you yet on Thursday what we're going to do, what you're going to do with those senior high students. Um, and I looked for a couple things, and what I looked for I couldn't find. And so finally Beth said, why don't you just see what's on their mind? And so they have a question box in the class they're currently doing right now. And I, I just gave them each a sheet of paper. I said, I want you to write down any question you have at all about our church, about God, about me. I don't, I probably don't know the answer, but let's just, I want to see what's on your mind. And so we spent the hour asking and, and trying to answer questions. And again, these kids are smart and they have great questions, but I was so excited. Um, and we had the junior high in there today as well. So that was a lot of fun. Um, but one of the questions, and this is where I'm going with this, I think it was the second to last question, I don't know who wrote it, was this. 
How do you biblically, keep in mind this is a junior or high school, a junior or senior high school student asking the question, how do you biblically seek God's will in situations when you don't know what to do? How do you biblically seek God's will in situations when you don't know what to do? I want you to know that is almost exactly what this sermon is about this morning. In fact, I almost verbatim have that, that is the pivotal question you're going to hear from me in just a moment. I'm like, Lord, I think we're on the right track this morning. And so I said to the kids who were running out of time, I said, I can't answer that for you right now, but now you have to come to church and you have to pay attention if you want to know the answer. And I just love, first of all, that our young people are asking such questions and then thankful that God knew somebody, apparently, at least one of us needed to hear the answer or an answer to it today. So with that in mind, I'm in Ruth chapter 3. We're going to look at the entire chapter this morning because it's all one movement or one act in the unfolding story of Ruth. So I invite you to follow along as I begin reading in Ruth 3 verse 1 down through verse 18. This is what the Bible says. It says, Then Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Now is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what you should do. She, Ruth, said to her, Naomi, all that you say... I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. It happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward, and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative." Then he said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask, for all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Now, it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. So remain this night, and when morning comes, if he, this other close relative, will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Again, he said, give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it, and he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. She said, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, Do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then she said, Wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. You know, without a doubt, the most celebrated night in history happened 2,000 years ago in the little town of Bethlehem when Jesus Christ was born. But what I want you, us to together recognize this morning, is that the path, the road that led to that most momentous of all nights in human history actually passed straight through this one. Through another midnight clear in the little town of Bethlehem, 
When some other wise, as were Mary and Joseph, very ordinary people, were drawn into God's salvation plan in a rather unusual way. And that points to, among probably many other things, but that points to one of what I believe are the truly great mysteries of our faith, the truly great mysteries of knowing and following the Lord, which is this, that at the very same time that God is unfolding his cosmic master plan for human history, a plan he knows every detail of from start to finish, he already mapped it out before he even set into motion. But at the very same time that God, almighty, infinite, sovereign God, is working out his master plan for human history, he is also, at the very same time, and by the way, with the same degree of precision, he is working out uniquely personal plans in the lives of each and every one of his people. And as we've repeatedly noted already, I think every Sunday, if I recall correctly, in our study of Ruth so far, He works those plans out from our point of view. Again, God knows the beginning from the end, forwards, backwards, and inside and out. But from our point of view, he is working those plans out, of course, in real time. That is to say, you may know and trust this morning that God is leading you, but as we sang perhaps a moment ago, we don't always know where it is he is taking us next. From our point of view, it happens in real time, and that is vital to remember this morning where we pick the story up today because no one involved here, not Ruth, not Naomi or Boaz, is certain where their story is going. And they don't know what the eventual outcome of what is going on among them is going to be. And that raises a profound question, essentially the question that one of our young people asked in Sunday school this morning. I have merely phrased it this way. What does it take, here's where we're going this morning, what does it take to walk with God when your future is unclear? What does it take to walk with God, to keep walking with God, to walk faithfully with God? When your future, my future, maybe our collective future is unclear. Now, to distinguish, for all of us, the future is certainly unknown. None of us knows what the rest of this day holds. None of us knows what tomorrow and the week ahead holds. For all of us, the future is certainly unknown. But by unclear, here's what I mean. That the unknownness of the future has you rattled. It has you uneasy. Maybe it has you into full-blown anxiety in one way or another. You know the future is unknown, but because it's unclear, you are personally unsettled. And what I mean by that is is maybe there's something coming your way. There's specific circumstances you are in. There is certain news you are waiting for. There is a season of life you are passing through. Maybe you're a young person this morning, and you're trying to decide, what do I do this summer? Do I go work at camp? Do I go find a job? Maybe you're a little bit older than that, and you're contemplating the question, where do I or even should I go to college? How should I spend those first few years of young adulthood? Maybe you're further down the path. And your uncertainty, your dis-ease has to do with marriage or finances or relocation or job change. There's a health problem. There's a, a relational issue. And you're unsettled because you can't see where it's going. How do you walk with God through that? What does it take to walk with Him? And again, that's where the The story of this very unusual nighttime scene in Bethlehem is so helpful because in the actions of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, 
what I'm going to show you this morning is three virtues emerge. Three personal virtues, character qualities, godly character qualities emerge. Three virtues which I see, think there's evidence for all three virtues in all three characters. However, as I drilled down deeper into the story, as I tried to put myself momentarily in each of their sandals, what I discovered is each of these characters, each one of these three characters, in a very special way, seems to embody one of the virtues in particular. So we've got three characters, we've got three virtues, one character, uh, embodies or illustrates each of those virtues. That's where we're going this morning, and we're going to see what they can teach us about walking with God when the future is unclear. We're going to start, first of all, with Naomi, and what I want you to see in her is her ambition. The first thing that we can learn from the characters in this story about walking with God when the future is unclear is we can take note of the ambition of Naomi. Now, I don't know if you noticed when we started reading the story this morning, but Naomi is different at the beginning of chapter 3. Up to this point, what we've seen of Naomi as her story, her part of the story has unfolded, is that she is someone who has been drowning in the sea of past sorrow and heartache. She's lost her husband. She's lost two sons. She's been a refugee fleeing famine twice. She's had a rough go of it. And, and remember when she first came back to Bethlehem in the previous chapter, as all her old friends uh, saw her coming, they said, it's Naomi. She said, no, I'm not Naomi anymore. She said, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara because Mara means bitter and God has dealt bitterly with me. That is not the woman we meet in chapter 3, verse 1. Something has changed. And what's changed is she has taken her eyes and somehow her heart has followed away from the past and, and even began to process the present and she's turned her eyes to the future. And I would submit to you she's turned her eyes to the future in a very ambitious way. Now, Real quick, here's what I mean by ambition. Because ambition is not a synonym for presumption. Both involve seeing something and you want to go get it. You're ambitious for something. You're presumptuous for something. There is a goal. There is a, an object. There is a thing that you want to achieve. But presumption, the problem with presumption, presumption cuts corners. Presumption breaks the rules. It does things you shouldn't do to get where you want to go. And that is something godly, listen to me, that is something godly ambition categorically rules out. There's a difference between ambition and presumption. And while there are definitely times in all of our lives, and the Bible says it over and over again, when the right thing to do is to wait on God. You've read that in the Psalms. Wait on the Lord. Those who wait on the Lord will gain new strength. I believe that with all my heart, but I also believe, and Ruth's story continues to show us this, that following God, just as often as it means or calls us to wait on Him, just as often, in fact, I might even say more often, following God means getting up out of our chair, out of our misery, out of whatever it is we are stuck in and doing the next thing, taking the next step, going through whatever door he has set before us, seizing the next opportunity. And that is exactly what Naomi's doing here and what I mean by drawing your attention to her ambition. Look at verse 1 again. Then Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, Shall I not seek security for you? Other translations in English may say, seek rest for you, a home for you. May I not seek this for you, that it may be well with you? Now, probably what's, what Naomi has gotten her thinking is, 
as we've seen in the first two chapters, Ruth has been doing so much to care for her, right? She's the one who's been ensuring that they eat. She's the one who has been ensuring that, that, that they are taken care of. She has been seeking security for Naomi. I think Naomi's been thinking, well, how do I return the favor? How do I do this for her? And specifically, what she is thinking of when she says seeking security, she is thinking of how in those days and in that culture, women primarily found their security, socially speaking, in marriage. Basically, she's saying, you know, Ruth... I'm older than you, and I'm not going to be here forever. Chances are you're going to be around longer than I am. Isn't it time we found you a husband? Isn't it time we found you someone to share the rest of your life with? And I think verses 2, 3, and 4 indicate she's been thinking about this for a little while. Look at verse 2. Now, is not Ruth, hypothetically speaking... How about Boaz? Let's just think about that one for a moment. Is not Boaz, who you've been working for, our kinsman? Let's talk about that. Behold, I just happen to know that he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. And we say, big deal. Actually, it was. Because winnowing barley on the threshing floor, the threshing floor was a, a common, a community area in somewhere in or outside of Bethlehem where landowners, farmers took turns har- or bringing what they harvested and separating the wheat from the chaff, the good from the bad, the grain they wanted to sell or to store from that which didn't need to be kept. And, and somehow, Naomi has learned that it's Boaz's turn to go to the threshing floor. So she says, well, let's just talk that over a little bit. She says, so verse 3, wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor, but don't make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. Now, what she's not doing is telling her to put on a prom dress. She's not telling her, you know, put on your very best. Actually, the literal meaning is just some sort of outer cloak. She knows it's going to be cold, and this is part of her, her, her plan. She basically says, wash up and bundle up, And go down to the threshing floor after the sun sets. And it shall be, verse 4, when he lies down, you shall notice the place where he lies. And go uncover his feet. And lie down, and then he will tell you what you should do. Now, if anybody comes and uncovers your feet during the night, sooner or later you're going to wake up, right? You're going to know something's going on. And listen, there are all kinds of ways this plane could have backfired. There are all kinds of ways in which the plan could go, have gone wrong. And, and I'm sure that, that Naomi had, had spun a few of those up in her mind. But she did not allow whatever disaster scenarios, whatever wrong turns the plan could take that she had thought up in her mind to overrule her ambition. Her selfless ambition to act on her daughter-in-law's behalf. You sought security from me. I am now going to do what I can to take care of of you. What I want to suggest this morning is that in these days, which are more and more all the time, a whole lot like the days of the judges in which Ruth lived, when the Bible says everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. Everybody's doing their own thing for their own pleasure. I believe that we as Christians could do so much more to advance the gospel and see God work powerfully among us and in us if we took a, took a lead or took note of Naomi's ambition. And yes, I know there's times to wait, but sometimes waiting turns into paralysis. And we're like, God, do it for us. And what God is saying, no, I want to do it through you. 
And there are times we need, as Naomi did here, to step out and see God work. I think that if you want to know how to walk with God when the future is unclear, ambition has to be part of the equation. Most likely, God is not just going to drop whatever it is you're after in your lap. He is in charge, but we follow him. However, it needs to be combined with a second virtue, a second character quality, a second thing we need to take hold of if we want to follow God when the future is unclear. Number one, we need to take note of the ambition of Naomi. Number two, we need to combine that with the integrity of Boaz. Second virtue we need to see is the integrity of Boaz. I want to offer you a principle, and I realize this, is, this may sound presumptuous of me to say, but I believe it with all my heart. I want to offer you a principle that, as a believer, you need to remember for the rest of your life. And that principle is this. You cannot do God's will. Everybody say, I cannot do God's will if I go around God's word. You cannot do the will of God. You cannot say you're in the will of God. You you cannot find, discover God's will for your life, for your present, for your future by going around or outside of or running roughshod over God's written word. You cannot do what God, listen, we we keep saying God's always going to get done what God wants to get done. God's purposes will always be accomplished. But what I'm saying is this, I have no right to assume I'm going to be right in there on them and experiencing the blessings that come with being in the will of God, if I am at the same time knowingly living contrary to what the Bible calls holy, and I've got a verse to back it up, James 4, 17, to the one who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, it's sin. If you know the right thing and don't do it or do otherwise, it's sin. And that is why we need to, I believe, resist the temptation to read this particular scene through jaded 21st century eyes of what goes on in the next movement of this story. And and by that I mean by looking at what happened here on the threshing floor, some sort of illicit encounter, looking for sordid details of, of, of people behaving immorally. We need to resist that temptation. Now, none of these three people, Ruth, Naomi, Boaz, perfect people. They're ordinary people like us. But the plain sense of what's said here, which is how we should always read the Bible, we should always start by reading it plainly. My old Bible college professor, Dave Glock, he said, if the plain sense makes sense, don't seek any other sense. You'll end up with nonsense. Don't do it. When we read it plainly, as it's set before us, what's said here about each of these three people shows them operating with integrity. And I think Boaz most of all. Because while it's naive to think that by this point in the story, he didn't have eyes for Ruth, maybe in more than a supervisory way. Maybe he was spinning up scenarios, romantic notions, this beautiful widow working for him, uh, working in his fields. And and maybe his heart skipped a beat when he discovered it's her who just uncovered my feet and is laying there at the floor uh, alongside me or among my people. Even so, I want you to look at how he handled this situation. Listen to me. How he handled the situation he could have exploited in a lot of different ways. First of all, I want you to note, most importantly, he honored God's law. In this scene that, that many through the years have read as, as immoral, as illicit, as some sort of 
sinful shenanigans going on. Boaz is clearly a man honoring the law of God. Because, you see, I think, I think Boaz is probably thrilled at what Ruth is suggesting here, right? That, that they get married. That, that he become the kinsman redeemer, the goel, the blood relative whose job it is to step in and minister to and rescue loved ones in need. But what Boaz also knew, he may have been thrilled at the idea, but he also knew that he was not first in line for it. Look at verses 12 and 13 in your Bible. He says, now, it is true, I'm a close relative. I qualify as a kinsman redeemer, but guess what? There's a relative closer than I. There's another male blood relative who is more closely related to your family than me. So, verse 13, remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will, as surely as the Lord lives. So lie down until the morning. As a man of integrity, what Boaz is saying is, listen, there's something I want. I'm feeling a little ambitious here now myself. But I'm not going against the law of God to get it. I'm going to trust that if I'm going to do God's will, I'm going to do it God's way. So he honored the law. Secondly, he guarded, he acted in a way in the scene to guard both of their reputations. Look at verse 11. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city, and Bethlehem was not a big city, but all my people in the city know you are a woman of excellent, high moral character. You are a a godly woman. And, 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 and the reputation around town of Boaz was exactly the same. And he said, listen, whatever comes of this conversation, I don't want anything to mess that up. You being a woman of excellence and me being known as a virtuous man too. And so what does he do? Well, we guard their reputation first by saying just you stay at my feet for the night, okay? So if someone comes across and sees what's going on, they don't get the wrong idea. You're at my feet, you need to stay at my feet. And I think you understand what I'm saying there. But then by also, it says, before the sun came up, he sent her away under cover of darkness because even though nothing inappropriate or immoral had happened, he didn't want somebody to see them and get the idea that it had and they suddenly become a target for gossip. He wanted to guard their reputations. He obeyed the law. He guarded their reputations. And then thirdly, I'd note that he ensured her safety. Partly by keeping her under his care for the night, by not sending her back out once the conversation had happened. The night in such places could be very dangerous. But also partly by not seeking to pursue her in a physical way. Which again, if you're living in days when everybody does what's right in their own eyes, people say, well, why not? Right? He didn't do that. He's a man of integrity. And here's my question. Can the same be said today about you? And can the same be said today about me? Do the people who know us as followers of Jesus, and even those who don't, but maybe have some sort of ringside seat to the lives we are living, can they say the same about us today? By that I mean this. Do we declare, as we did a little bit earlier in song, on Sunday, proudly declare our, de our devotion to follow Jesus. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. I will follow you. If my life I lose, I will follow you. Do we say that and sing that? And we mean it on Sunday morning. But from Sunday afternoon to Saturday night, we live in all kinds of ways that are contrary to that, that betray that commitment. I'm just saying it's possible that it happens. But listen, if you want to, listen, if you want to, 
follow God, if you want to pursue God's will, whether the future is clear or unclear or, or whatever it is, you've got to follow the integrity of Boaz. You've got to be someone who lives according to the principle who understands Christian integrity means I cannot do God's will by going around God's word. I can't make, it's not choose my own adventure. It's know what his word says and do it. How do we follow God when the future is unclear? Well, number one, little ambition like Naomi goes a long way. Number two, integrity like Boaz is absolutely essential. And then third, finally, and and, and according to the Bible, most importantly, whatever we do, whatever following God into an uncertain future means, it requires the faith of Ruth. It requires faith. And I think that is the virtue that Ruth most vividly embodies in this story. Look again with me at, at verse 9. It says, It happened in the middle of the night that the man, Boaz, was startled. And he bent forward, and behold, a woman is lying at his feet. Now, a couple of things I want you to note about that verse. Number one, number one, this was, in fact, what, what happened in the next verse or two was, in fact, a marriage proposal. She really was going there to ask if he would marry her. She echoes his own words. If you look across the page at chapter 2, verse 12, Boaz says upon first meeting her, he says, Ruth, may the Lord reward your work. And your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. And then in verse 9, after she is there, she, verse 8, she shows herself or reveals who she is there in the middle of the night. He says, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid, so spread your covering, literally spread your wing over me, for you are a close relative. And in those days, that in Hebrew culture symbolically meant marry me. Be my kinsman redeemer. This is, this is something I desire. So I want you to note that this was, in fact, a marriage proposal. I also would have you note that this was not in the instructions that Naomi gave her in verse 4. Go back and look at that in your Bible. It shall be when he lies down. Notice the place where he lies. Make your way there. Uncover his feet. Lie down. And he will tell you what you should do. You wait on him, but Ruth didn't wait on him. And, and one commentator, one author suggests that when we read that, when we see that, Ruth sort of taking this liberty here, he says, quote, we should stand back in awe wondering what has possessed her. Where did she ever get the idea to take it this next step? Well, I know what possessed her. Faith. Faith possessed her. Think about it. What have we seen from the beginning of Ruth's story? We've seen every time she was in need and acted in obedience to the Lord, God provided. Every time they stepped out, every time she and Naomi, again, widowed, refugees, hungry, come back to Bethlehem, no home. But every time they got up and did the next thing that had to be done, God met them there. God provided for them there. God took care of them. And so she's, she's just acting out of, of, of the life that she's been, been living already, seeing God supply their every need. I think she may have also been emboldened by, by Naomi's ambition. And, and so maybe Ruth's explanation, you say, Ruth, you know, what got into you? You know, you were supposed to wait for Boaz, according to Naomi, and you went in. And I think she might have just said, you know, I was just in the moment. 
I, I was just feeling it, and like, I, I just, this seemed like the right thing to do, and I don't know if it was the Holy Spirit or, or what it was, but I thought, I'm going to make my request known, and I didn't know how Boaz would respond, but in faith, I made my request. What I think we should see is just as it so often goes with God, not only did Boaz answer in the affirmative, not only did Boaz say, listen, if it, if it works out, the answer is yes, he literally heaped more blessings upon her. Verse 16, when she came to her mother-in-law the next morning, she said, how did it go, my daughter? She told her all that the man had done, and she said, and look, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, listen, not only am I going to take care of you, I want to keep taking care of your mother-in-law. Do not go to her empty-handed. Isn't that how God so often works? Not only does he meet us where we are, he goes above and beyond. Has God ever gone above and beyond for you? I bet he has. It's amazing, but that's who he is. That's his heart. He is a gracious, good, heavenly father. And then, with that step of faith complete, then it was time, verse 18, to once again wait on the Lord. Naomi says so. Then she said, wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out. Or the man, we know Boaz, he's the kind of man who's not going to let this rest until he settles it today. How do we follow God when the future is unclear? Well, it takes a little bit of ambition, godly ambition, holy ambition. It takes a whole lot of integrity. And it takes ultimately faith. Without faith, it's what? Impossible to please God. But with faith, all things are possible. And the just, the righteous live by faith. Something I've been very deliberate to say in each and every week of this series, I already said it this morning, God's will will always be accomplished. What God wants done gets done. What God wants to accomplish gets accomplished. And my point this morning is, is not, I don't want anybody to misunderstand, my point is not that in order to be in on God's plan and in on God's will, you've got to live a mistake-free life, Okay? That, that that's when, because that's just, not, that's just not the way it works. We don't live mistake-free lives. We don't live sin-free lives. But what I am saying is, if we want to be in on what God is doing, we mustn't live passively. Passively, just sitting back and waiting for things to happen, even when the future is unclear from where we sit. And with that in mind, I want to slip in one more little fun fact, and then I promise I'll give you the big idea, and we're done. There's one more thing in this chapter in this scene that I want you to see, because there's one Hebrew scholar, one Bible scholar who suggests that, if you look again, look at your verse 16, one final time, who suggests that when, when we're told that, that she, Ruth, came to her mother-in-law, and, and Naomi said to her, how did it go, my daughter, and she told her all the man had done for her, that perhaps a more accurate way to to translate that question or to understand the gist of that question, what Naomi was actually asking Ruth is this, who are you now? Who are you now? And by that, I mean, are you still Malon's widow? Or are you now, or at least on your way to being Boaz's wife? After all that you just went through, the steps of faith you've just taken, God's plan, who are you now? Who are you today? And, and as we close, I want to ask you the same question. Who are you today? Not who do you want to be, not who should you be, not do you want people to think you are, but who are you? 
as a follower of Jesus today? Let me ask you, here's what I mean. Do you, is your ambition to truly know and follow Jesus Christ? Is that your ambition? You may not even understand what that means, but yes, I want to follow Christ and glorify him with my life. Question number two. If so, are you serious about obeying his word? If his word says it, I will do it. If his word says don't do it, I will refrain from it. The best I am able to understand his word, are you serious? Is your integrity, your way of life, I will obey. Third, will you act in faith when God opens a door? We act in faith. Now listen, sometimes we step through a door, step toward a door, and God shuts it. That's his prerogative to do. But when he puts it in front of you, when you see the next thing, will you, by faith, get up and do it, whatever it happens to be? Because the big idea of the message this morning is this. It is that every obedient step of faith glorifies the Lord. You want to do what glorifies God. You want to do what pleases him. You want to be obedient to his will. Just take a step of faith. And then the next one, and the one after that. Because every obedient step of faith glorifies the Lord. And that is the way to follow him, even when the way is not clear. Father, thank you that we can call you Father this morning. Thank you that though you are the almighty God, the sovereign, providential one, who gets all things done according to your own purpose, and your plans never fail, that you are at the same time a gracious, generous, compassionate Heavenly Father who just as we do with our own children, those of us who are parents, many times say, just trust me. Just follow. Here's where we're going to go and, and, and you can trust me to get you there. Thank you, Father, that we can trust you in that way. Lord, many of us are living in seasons of great uncertainty Father, there's all, always things in our lives that we aren't sure where it's going to go or how it's going to work out. And Father, it does. I confess many times to me, it is a paralyzing feeling. But you've called us to more. Father, I pray that today, whether the need of each one of our hearts is ambition, maybe it's a need to, to return to living as a man or woman of integrity. Maybe it's just, Father, we, we realize it's a step of faith. Maybe it's something else entirely, but Father, whatever it is you're showing us right now, I pray that, that each and every one of us would say yes to you, to whatever that next thing is. And Father, for those of us who may continue in seasons of uncertainty for a long time to come, Lord, that, that the answer is going to come, but it's not coming today or tomorrow, or at least it doesn't seem to. Father, even when we are weary, even when we are weak, Father, help us to draw near to you, to trust in you. Paul said himself, when I'm weak is when I'm strong. Father, I pray that as always you take the things of truth that have been spoken here this morning, you would seal them to our hearts and move them to our hands and feet. And I pray that all the rest would slip away so that we truly leave looking and trusting in Jesus alone, in whose name we pray.